Oh, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. I just love that kid. Oh, my gosh. And I love the way Ellen describes this little boy. He loves to say whatever pops into his head. Like, um, do you know people like that? I have several people like that in my life, fortunately. Uh, one of them is uh, one of my oldest and best friends, Brian. Uh, he's like this. Uh, I can always count on him for anything really in life, but I could certainly count on him to tell me what he's thinking. Um, years ago, he and I were uh, in our community group, and um, another friend, Ryan, asked me, hey, uh, Mike, what are you talking about next week, next Sunday? And I confessed slash complained, like right there, like, God, I wish I knew. Like, it's a hot mess right now. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. And, you know, Ryan kind of encouraged me. He goes, just give me, you know, just give me the 30-second, like, elevator speech kind of thing. And so I launched in. I did 30 seconds on, like, what I was hoping to maybe think about, probably trying, maybe. And when I was done, Brian, my buddy, had this confused slash aggravated look on his face. He looks at me and he goes, that was good. Like, why don't you just say that? Like, just that. And we do a couple songs, we can be in and out of there in 10 minutes. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Yeah, tell us how you really feel. Um, so last week, we introduced a, a new series of talks um, that we're going to do this month and next month about the stages of faith. And there are three basic ideas that we're working with here that I kind of want to review before we launch in this morning. The first one is, like so many other areas of life, from biological growth to levels of baseball, to even the process of grieving, faith is often developed and experienced in stages. So that's the first idea that's kind of like, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about stages of faith? The second one is, when we recognize this about faith, we can be more merciful and patient with ourselves as our faith matures, and we can be more gracious and welcoming and inclusive of others who may not be in the same place that we are on that um, continuum. So, um, and that's a good thing. And the third thing is, um, it's often doubt and difficulties or questions or suffering that are the doorway to the next stage. And way too often, in fact, I would say one of the, the foundational building blocks of storyline of why it is that we started is that we, we saw so many people walking away from faith or kind of being shown the door from communities of faith because they started to ask hard questions or the wrong questions or started to struggle in their faith in such a way like that wasn't allowed. So um, all three of these kind of reasons work together for why we're doing this because we desperately, we do not want to be a community like that. We want to be a community where um, people are allowed. We're all allowed to belong before we believe, no matter what we believe, to ask our questions, to wonder out loud, and that this is a safe space and a, and a safe community to do that in, okay? So we've chosen these stages, and we're kind of riffing off of a book by Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt, I think is what it's called. And the stages are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. So those four stages, and that's just a framework, folks. Those aren't in the Bible. They're not written in stone. This isn't like the way it is. That's not the point of this. Like all stage theories in every part of life, they're just a construct that hopefully kind of gives us a little bit better handle on what's happening to us like, or what's happening around us 
Well, maybe sometimes what's happening within us when it comes to this most important issue or topic in life of faith, what it is we hope in, what it is we long for, what it is we trust in, it's a really important topic. I think we all know that. And so um, the other thing to, rem to remember is that this is not, these stages of faith, they imply a growing maturity, okay? Just, um, but that's, it's not a scale of value or belonging, okay? So folks who are experiencing faith in stage four are not better than people who are in stage one. They're not more loved. They're not more valuable in any way, okay? So this morning, we're going to um, explore kind of the contours of this stage of complexity as we look at an encounter in the Bible between two sisters and Jesus. But before we do that, I want to back up for one second and develop this idea a little bit more about doubt being a doorway, because I think it's a really important concept or a really important idea. One way to know that we're pushing up against the edge of one stage, when, really when it comes to anything. Last week we talked about t-ball. When it starts to get boring or it's no fun, maybe it's time to have someone throw a live pitch at you, okay? But one way we know we're moving up against the edge of one stage and moving toward another is when we start to ask new questions, hard questions. When we say the quiet part out loud, like, I'm pretty sure that's just a guy in a suit, right? right? That's, he wasn't supposed to say that. And so what's going on there, and how does that work? Well, in the early uh, 1900s, there's a French anthropologist named Arnold Van Gennep, and he coined a term to describe this very universal human experience. As he looked back in history at individuals and societies, he discovered that all societies had rites of passage. All societies um, all, and people, personally, faced these movements forward in their life. And so he coined this term that he called liminality, liminality. And it comes from the Latin word that means threshold, okay? So liminality is a state of transition between one stage and the next, especially in uh, major stages in one's life. So that's what liminality means. And, and here's the thing. When we are in a liminal space, and I think in the last two years, we all know what that feels like, right? Like, sheesh, like some, everything's changing so fast. The way things used to be are not going to be, the, you know, the, uh, the future is not going to look like the past, right? But when we're in a liminal space, or in what another anthropologist called, and I love this, he called it betwixt and between, right? My, I read that, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that is my life right now betwixt and between when we're there life is not easy no one really chooses that we we usually don't get to this place you know by choice we don't sign up for these betwixt and between spaces for liminality really usually what it is is that something has happened to us or around us or within us that's begging a new question the way that life used to go, the way that life used to work, the way I used to like, engage with God or, my, or faith, it's just not working anymore. So it's, ch it's a challenge to some way that we've understood life or ourselves or God or faith or church. Something has come. Reality has bumped up against the way things always used to be. 
So liminal moments push us out of our comfort zone, and the growing pains are real. And to be honest, in liminal moments, there's always incentives, real incentives, to like dig in, to resist the challenge, and to not move on. One of my favorite things to do when I see a little kid who's lost a tooth is to ask them how much money they got from the tooth fairy. And a couple years ago, just before the pandemic, actually, it was out, we were out in the foyer, and I asked a little girl, uh, who shall remain nameless, um, at how much money did you get from the tooth fairy? And she told me, so excited, she goes, I got $5. And then her mom was right here. She leaned over to me, and she goes, she, and she whispered, she goes, but I don't believe in the tooth fairy. But if I tell her that, I don't get the money. <laughs> right? Now, that's a funny example of an incentive to pretend that you're in a place where you're not anymore, right? Sometimes I think uh, kids pull this at Christmas, right? They're afraid. Oh, oh, gosh, if I tell them what I really think, that who knows who might stop coming, right? But that's a funny example. But all too often, there are really insidious incentives in life and in relationships and in communities and in families to remain in a stage of life that we know is not working for us anymore. When I lived in Los Angeles years ago, there were some missionaries that knocked on my door and they started to um, visit me on a regular basis because we, we invited them in and had put food out and were like, tell us all about your particular religion. I was totally fascinated, really very welcoming. Um, and they would come and share their faith and I loved it, totally fascinated. And over time, however, I was asking so many questions because I was like, whoa, I did not know that. Or, you know, I was learning about this new religion. religion. I was asking all these questions. So over time, I could tell that they were starting to wonder about their own religion. They're like, well, wait a second. That's a really good question. <laughs> like, and I wasn't necessarily trying to do that, you know, but that's what happened. And finally, at one of our meetings, dear sweet lady, Sister Cahoon, broke down and she said i don't think i believe this anymore but if i admit it my family will never talk to me again now, can you imagine that i hope and pray that you can't but i know that there are far too many of us in here today that know something about that too many of us know what it is to be like held hostage through the threat of exclusion right? And that is not good. It, it makes you wonder what kind of faith comes from that kind of pressure? What could possibly come out of that that's good and life-giving? And, and what kind of God does that family have faith in, right? So Storyline is desperately trying to become, and we're not there yet. We have such a long way to go, but I'm so excited about the direction we're facing and the trajectory we're on because we are desperately trying to become a community that begins with belonging because that's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus did it and Jesus did it that way because his method, which was loving relationships and inclusive community, is his message. His method is his message and it's in, in environments of unconditional love and belonging, acceptance and affection, where the message of unconditional love and belonging, acceptance and affection, makes sense, resonate. And there, and then we're free to explore and discover who we really are, 
and who it is that God wants to be for us. But belonging has to come first. And it's one of the reasons that we emphasize that so much and we really uh, bemoan the fact that so often religions of all stripes turn that upside down. You get to belong when you believe, right? As if church, uh, as a church, if we can't include people and cherish everyone where they are, as they are, for who they are, there's nothing that we can say to them about the love and grace of God that will make up for us not being loving and gracious, right? You cannot scream at people from street corners about how much God loves them. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So in liminal moments in life, and I would argue that whether or not you resonate with that personally, I think we can all say that the United States, that the world is in a liminal moment. This is a liminal space. We're on the threshold of what's next, and we don't know what that is. But in liminal moments, in times of trouble and tumult, um, like we're living through now, they not only reveal what kind of community we are, what kind of community we are is the same thing as saying whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, what kind of God we believe in. That's the same thing, right? We're either embodying God's grace or we're not. And if we're not, it doesn't matter if we're explaining it. So that's one of the big things that storyline is we're really, really hoping and praying and trying to become like that. Now, I could stop right here and talk about how challenging and difficult the last 26 months have been for all of us. And I know Storyline didn't always live up to each and every one, what each and every person in here thought was best, right? But, but having seen the tremendous amount of love and attention, grace and hard work that so many poured into our community to listen to everyone, to try and make all voices and opinions feel respected and heard, I really do hope and pray that at the very least, even when we went left and you think we should have gone right, or we went right and you think we should have gone left on these big decisions about how to handle COVID, I really hope and pray, even if you disagreed with the, what we did, that the way we proceeded gave away a heart that, of storyline that is, has a deep trust in a God that's good and a God that's gracious and I thank everybody so much for your patience as we sorted through these last 26 months. It was very, very difficult. Now, all of this to say, if our growing awareness of stages of faith separate us from one another or make us feel superior or inferior to others or other churches, if it makes it easier for us to just dismiss people because, oh, well, you know, they're not where I am or where we are, then we're missing the point entirely. Because though doubt and difficulty uh, are a threshold, often a doorway to the next stage, here's the things about how spiritual growth works. Each stage of faith includes the one before it. So in complexity, we don't leave simplicity behind. We bring it with us. It's always a part of us. This is not the corporate ladder we're climbing, people. We're, we're, um, there are no shortcuts. We are cultivating or trying to, together, 
cultivate the human soul, which also means that we, we can't skip steps. No shortcuts, no skipping steps. About five years ago, uh, when I was still coaching um, Lakeshore High School, I was the assistant basketball coach there, and we had a young man who showed up for the varsity tryouts, and he was impressive, like, what an athlete, what a stud, right? Um, and he, and he, he had just started playing basketball. He'd learned how to run the plays in our complex system. Like, he could run over here and do this, and then turn around and go over here. He was smart, so he could learn our complex system. But because he never went to, like, the simplicity stage of basketball, he didn't know how to simply play the game. He didn't have the simple fundamentals down. So, one example, he couldn't handle the basketball. He couldn't dribble very well. So, in tight spaces, with the pressure on, in tough times, he had nothing to fall back on because he didn't have that simple state, the, sim the simplicity of learning just how to play basketball. And th this is why in, in Kidport, the children right now are learning the basics of the faith, like the beautiful and awesome foundational simplicity of loving and trusting in a God who is on their side. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, it's necessary, it's good, it's good. Okay, so all that, with all that said, what are the contours of complexity? What's that look like? And if I could sum it up in one phrase, it would be things are not always what they seem to be. It, it is the beginning to wonder, like, is that a guy in a dinosaur suit? That's what's happening, okay? So, it might, and it happens a number of different ways. Um, some of the more common ones that I've seen uh, is like you get to know someone who's part of the out group, who doesn't belong to the people who are in or who get it, and you realize, man, this is a really good person. They're, they're a really wonderful person. I wasn't expecting that because they don't belong to my this, that, or the other. Uh, it may be going off to college and discovering other religions or other worldviews. It may be finding out that like the authority figure or one of the authority figures in this in your life from early on or from the simplicity stage of your faith maybe you find maybe you find out that sometimes they cuss under their breath when they miss a shot or that they speed all the time or at least it has other flaws too but that's for another talk for another day okay <laughs> now one of the features of complexity one of the features of this stage no matter how we get there no matter what liminal moment, what threshold we cross to get there, one of the features of complexity is that we tend to grow pragmatic, more pragmatic, like the dogmatic dualism of yes and no or good and bad fade to the background. They're no longer the main operating system in our life because we are now negotiating with a complex world, we're negotiating with we're interacting with complex people, and that means that requires um, a more a pragmatic approach to life, one where we become increasingly independent, okay? Now, um, all the parents out there will go, oh, that's just, that's teenagers. You're right. You're tracking with me if that's, if that's what you pick up on. Authority figures lose their power in our life in complexity that people can't they can't just simply tell us what to do what to say what to believe we don't just take everything in it's like sure yeah whatever in complexity we start to sense that we have our own ideas our own viewpoints we have something to offer something that we must share we discover that we have our own voice 
So in, co in complexity, in this stage of complexity, we discover that we have a voice, we have a role to play. We have agency, a sense of freedom, a, a free will to exercise and to make our beautiful noise. It often means that we are less like authority figure focused and we become more, it's common to become more coach focused or to search for a mentor, okay, who can help us to solve our problems on our own. So what that means is we're not looking for easy answers. More, more often than not, we're like searching for steps and techniques. That's what we're looking for in complexity. It's, if stage one is thinking all is known or knowable, in stage two, we tend towards believing that all is done or do, doable. Like there has to be a way. There has to be a way we can figure this out or we can get this done. We can solve this problem. So in complexity, life isn't a war. We said last week in simplicity, oftentimes, life is like this power struggle. Like we've got to get the right authority in power so that they can give us the right rules and everything will be perfect. But when we step into complexity, we start to see, oh, life's not that simple. Life is not a war like that. It's more like a game. Um, and it's a network of systems very complicated, the way they fit together, and I need to learn how to navigate all these systems if I'm going to achieve my goals. So if you come from a church background, and I, I don't, but if you come from a church background, I think it's safe to say that many American churches in the last certainly 50 years are grounded in stage one or stage two. They tend to come out of those areas or stages of faith. So when you get sermons that are like about the right answers, like this is the correct belief, and this is what we believe, and the clear implication is, and if you want to be part of we, you have to believe this too. In fact, people ask me all the time, like, Mike, you know, uh, what do you believe? And I always ask them, what does it matter? It doesn't matter what I believe. About what matters is what you believe. Let's talk, I, we can talk about that, but certainly I, I'm not here to try to get anyone to believe what I believe, right? But that's stage one when you're getting, when the sermons are about that. This is the correct official belief. This is what we believe. You are a we if you believe that. If you meet that condition. If you believe and behave basically a certain way, okay? The megachurch movement that really took on a lot of momentum in the 80s or what I think of as um, like the full service church movement in America, which is kind of like basically church as a mall. It's like a spiritual one-stop shopping. It um, kind of mirrors like a consumer-driven American, uh, Americanism. Um, where you can get in that building, uh, you can get whatever you want or need spiritually, maybe even more. And there the sermons become um, really practical, um, pragmatic, like five steps to happiness or three keys to wisdom. You know, early on in Storyline, someone came to me and they said, Mike, I just love the music. And by the way, they always say that. They always say that. I get it, people. You love the music, right? Okay, wow, yes, great. Point taken. Music, awesome. Check, all right, great. And then... And then there's the but, and I'm always the but, all right? <laughs> and some people use another word, but, okay, I'm always the but. And so he says, but, this person says, I love this, I don't know what you want me to think or believe when you're done speaking. 
And I actually said, oh, thank you. <laughs> and he, he looked really confused. Like, and, th and then he offered this, you really need to work on your THP. And I'm like, THP, woo, you've lost me there. He goes, your take-home point. Your take-home point. Like what it is that I want him to think or believe when he walks out the door. And um, he didn't last real long at Storyline, as you might imagine, right? <laughs> he wanted steps. He wanted techniques. He wanted how to do X, Y, or Z, what to think or believe. And, and spiritual growth in these early stages is often equated with just learning more information. Like I often hear this, like when do we get fed? And by fed, most of the time people mean I, I need to learn more facts. I need more information in my brain about God. Okay? And so those of you who have been around know that we don't tell people what to think or what to believe. And when you begin with belonging, that kind of makes sense, right? So we're in discovery mode as a community. I'm just up here wondering. We're, we're trying to ask questions, not answer them. We're trying to start conversations, not end them. All in the hope that we'll all start to acknowledge out loud and together what we all already know in here which is an oversimplified world or faith doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it's, you know, life comes to us dressed up and it's like, obviously, that's a dinosaur suit that you've got on life. This isn't working. So sometimes it's okay. And sometimes it's even good or necessary to take a second look at the status quo. Now, if you haven't seen... Um, this show on Amazon Prime, The Mar uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'd highly recommend it. It's really, really great. Um, it's so good. And in the scene that we're about to watch, Mrs. Maisel is a female comedian in the 1950s. And it's definitely a liminal moment for her. Her world's been rocked by divorce. And now um, uh, her father-in-law, her ex-father-in-law, who she really loves and cares about, has just had a heart attack. And on this threshold uh, of doubt and suffering, she starts to notice all kinds of things about reality and about the status quo that she didn't before. And this is someone, we're just going to watch someone move from simplicity into complexity. Really good, right? Folks who resonate with this stage of complexity, who have moved through this liminal moment, into a new way of seeing the world, start to notice all kinds of things. They tend to get very curious. They want to know, like, the backstory or the history, or why is it like this, or how come I never saw this before. They often like to read a lot. Uh, they love learning something new. And in, this, in that sense, it, this stage of complexity is such, it's such a great stage. It's such a, it's such a necessary and good stage um, it's a necessary part of the maturation process. And by the way, I love that word maturation. My dad never complains about getting old. He always says, it's part of the maturation process, Mike. And that sounds so much better, doesn't it? So whenever I'm complaining about my knees or my thinning hair, I always say, I'm not getting old, it's just the maturation process. Thanks, Dad, I appreciate that. But finally, in complexity, we find meaning in achievement, in accomplishment, in the confidence that I know how, or my group, my organization, my church, my, whatever, my team, or we know how to get things done. Because it's pragmatic, remember? 
So, which brings us to this encounter in the Bible with the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their encounter with Jesus. And I think it brings out some of the differences between simplicity and complexity. This is what the Bible says. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into uh, her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner party she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now, the first thing that I think uh, is important to notice is that Martha is a good person, right? Like, she's welcoming, she's hospitable, she's generous. She is working hard to care for and provide for her guests. Now, these are things that we all hopefully learn early on in life and, and thank God for that. Thank goodness. It's a good thing. But it's also really interesting to, to me that the Bible describes Martha's care and hard work in this situation with Jesus right there, not as good, but as a distraction. A distraction. Like being focused on simply doing the right thing can sometimes cause us to miss something that's going on that's deeper, that might be more profound. I suffer from this all the time. I see it in myself all the time, usually with the help of my wonderful wife, Lisa. Um, Lisa is awesome in so many ways, but in my view, so inefficient. Like, it just drives me crazy, especially when we're around other people. Like, we could be in the middle of something, like, really important, super critical. Like, the next um, episode of The Office is just starting. Someone will come over, and she'll drop everything, right? I want to hide. Like, maybe they won't notice, notice we're, we're not here, you know, and go away. But not her. Every, this happens every time we go into public, too, like a sporting event, the grocery store, an airplane, I want to watch the game or go in and get the food or, you know, fly to the location without meeting the entire plane. But it's like Lisa is on this mission. She's on a lookout for people. I've literally heard her say on a plane, oh, you're from Florida? Do you know Chad? <laughs> like, and I, she just, she could feel me cringing over here. And by the end of the trip, I get, she'll do 47 degrees of separation. And she's like, see, Mike? Good thing I asked. I'm like, that's true for everyone in the world. Long enough, I had a six-hour flight. My goodness. Anyways, drives me crazy. But Lisa is people-focused. I am task-oriented. I'm mired in the simplicity of just, let's, let's get this done. And I'm always thinking things like, Lisa, can we just please get out of here? I need to get home and work on my talk about loving other people. <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, I know. I heard it too. I know. I'm, I'm a Martha. When there are things to do, it's very simple for me. It's black and white, like get her done. And Lisa is so much more like Mary. She's so much like Mary. She sees something. She understands something that I don't. Like this sporting event that we're walking into or the grocery store that we're entering or the plane that we're getting on, it's not what it seems to be. That's, that's how she's thinking. There's more going on than simply what's going on. 
And it's a gift that she gives me over and over again, and one that I can now openly admit to all of you because she isn't here this morning. <laughs> so Jesus seems to be saying the same thing uh, to Martha here in this encounter. He looks at the hard work, work that this woman is doing. At, at this woman who she knows what is right she's doing the right thing but she's filled with resentment because others don't see her value they don't do things the way that she thinks they ought to be done like this is what should be done right now and by the way that resentment don't miss this it's aimed at jesus too she isn't just mad at mary she's also frustrated with God because this isn't how it's supposed to go so check out what Jesus says to her my dear Martha you are worried and upset over all these details there's only one thing worth being concerned about Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her what if any time people are in the room so is the divine. What if we have something to learn in all of these moments? That being task-oriented, that simply focused on being right or doing the right thing, can totally miss. You know, writing about this gap between the ex uh, experiencing faith only in its simplicity and opening up to a more complex experience of what God has for us uh, Father Richard Rohr wrote this. Unfortunately, organized religion today seems to be strongly invested in either-or thinking. It gives them a sense of certitude, clear authority, and control over all the confusing data. At this level, we all become invested in what Wallace Stevens called a blessed rage for order. Even though our founder, Jesus, seemed quite comfortable with the constant disorder of the world a large percentage of religious people become and remain quite rigid thinkers because their religion taught them that to be faithful obedient and stalwart in the ways of God they had to create order Martha thought she was doing the right thing and she wasn't doing anything wrong but I would just ask for us to consider this this morning was she flourishing in her current stage of faith or was she stuck in it? You see, I think the resentment is the sign, is the signal. This resentment that she had, the frustration that she had with God, the frustration that she had with her sister, that's the difficulty that could reveal the doorway. Psychologists talk about this as thymotic desires. Thymotic desires. It's the need to be seen, respected, and appreciated. Think of a little kid like, look at me, vying for attention or wanting that pat on the head. Good boy, good girl. In certain stages, we don't, if we don't sense that we're receiving attention and approval and appreciation, we become resentful. We become worse, right? Think Vladimir Putin. All he does is tell resentment stories to Russian people about it's all thematic desires that he's highlighting in his propaganda to the Russians. And could that, that, is that the kind of the same thing that's happening here with Martha? She wasn't wrong. She wasn't in, incorrect, but she was, following all, she was following all the rules, but she was distracted, 
stuck in what we are simply supposed to do that was supposed to get her this pat on the head instead of diving into the complexity of who we get to be with and who we could become. There's more going on here than meets the eye, and maybe there's more to the life of faith. Maybe it's more complex than just being right. Maybe sometimes we have to sit down and contemplate, like face the complexities like Mary did, and let God just reveal himself to us. Because according to Jesus, Mary discovered it. Slowing down, asking the question, voicing the doubt, is discovering the one thing worth being concerned about. So when being right isn't good enough, when um, hustling to do the right thing and getting it done, that doesn't satisfy, when having the easy answers fails to answer the question that life is asking us, that's a liminal moment. And it isn't something to fear, it's something to be embraced together. And it can be holy ground if we'll let it, if we'll rest in the nearness of God. And maybe that is the threshold to the one thing worth being concerned about. Next week is Easter Sunday. It's the holiest day. It's the most important day of the Christian faith. And it's one that I certainly is inviting us to consider the next stage of faith, perplexity. And I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. And we're so glad, so thankful that you began with belonging, that you included anybody who wanted to be. And we're thankful for this encounter with Mary and Martha, where um, you remind us that to sit at your feet is um, worth it. God, I pray that this week that you would show us the times and places and spaces where we can do that, where we can see life through your eyes, where we can hear your voice, and uh, we ask that you would give us your broken heart for um, the people in, in our world and this world that your heart is broken for. And I, I pray, Lord, that um, as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week on Easter. Two.